This is Jordan Templeton with GPG Advisors, and we're proud to release our previously recorded podcast interview from September of last year with Sandeep Mathrani and Scott Morey. So this is Scott Morey with the RE Insight Series, sponsored by GPG Advisors, and I am thrilled today to have the opportunity to have Sandeep Mathrani, the Chief Executive Officer and Director at Zenogloth Properties, as our guest today. So Sandeep, thank you for the time, and I greatly appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start by delving into your background. And obviously, I know most of that about you, given we had worked together. But I want to go back from where you grew up and, and before you came over to the States and kind of that environment and where you went to school and where you lived and, and those things. Can you, can you share with us? So, hi, Scott. Uh, happy to be uh, on with you. Um, so, I actually grew up in, in India, in Bombay. Um, I actually grew up in a family that um, was the uh, was was focused in in business, um, and their predominant focus was uh, in construction uh, and a manufacturing company. My dad had two companies, and uh, since we were children, my brother and I were told he becomes a mechanical engineer and looks after the family manufacturing company, and I become a civil engineer and I look after the construction activities of the, of the family. Um, so lo and behold, through the form, uh, I came to America in 1978. I did a year of high school, um, and I sort of went from a family in India that was a well-established uh, private school, and I came to America on my own uh, and uh, went to a year of public school uh, outside Philadelphia. Uh, in 1979, I joined an engineering school in New Jersey um, and became a film engineer uh, to the form uh, with the hopes of going back to India to take over my family business. Well, actually, you went to, if my memory is right, you went to Stevens Institute of Technology and then digging around a little bit. I didn't know this, actually, but in four years, you not only got your undergraduate degree, but you got a master's and it was dual. I believe in engineering and then in management science. Is, is that correct? Correct. Uh, you know, my dad, who, um, uh, you know, like most uh, Indian parents, uh, want their children to become super achievers, um, you know, kind of coerced me into doing two degrees in four years. Because his thesis was the second degree was for free. Um, not that my dad was paying for the first one, he didn't get out of full scholarship. Uh, so I thought it wouldn't for a long time. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. Uh, there were pay phones, telegrams, faxes. Uh, I'm not even sure if fax machine was in those days. I actually don't think so. No, I don't think I, so. I, I think I got numerous telegrams from him. Of course, the phone booth would ring in the common, in the dormitory. Um, anyway, after a while, I couldn't avoid him. And so I, uh, I did do two degrees in four years, and I graduated in 83 with both those degrees. And then I actually did go back home in 1983 to go work for my dad in the construction business. Um, I worked for about a year with him. I really enjoyed the experience. We built um, the business quite well. Um, and then he somehow felt it was important to do a second master's degree because uh, he had this inclination that construction was a dirty business and I should really become a designer. Um, lo and behold, the reason son comes back to America to do a second degree, and 
And then, of course, uh, the, the fate and fortunes changed. I decided to stay here and work for some practical experience. And I've enjoyed being in America. And, uh, and that was 1986. And now we're sitting in 2017, um, you know, 30, 40, um, 30, hang on, <laughs> 31, 31 years later, uh, I'm still here. Now, the, the mass of science had to be early at that point in time for a degree like that, wasn't it, or not? It just seems well, like what happened... Yeah, what happened, so in engineering, in IT, then, the Institute of Technology, that they were Caltech or MIT or RPI, they were not, they were not universities, right? they were Institute of Technology, and so they, I, it may have changed now, I don't know the answer, but in those days, they all offered, you couldn't get an MBA, uh, they were not authorized to give an MBA, so what they did was they gave an MMS in finance, but it was their de facto MBA. Gotcha. It was, gotcha. More, it, was more, it was more the way the degree was given than the content. The content was everything that you would study in an MBA. Interesting. Well, and that school's got a great pedigree. Look at the history of it. And I think it was formed in 1870. It's one of the oldest, I think, institutions in the U.S. Anyway, well, at, at the time, it was a good university, and then it sort of went to a patch where they sort of fell off the rails. And kind of interesting, just because I track it being my alma mater, is fast climbing the ranks of becoming a great university again. So I'm pleased, um, you know, to, to, uh, to, to have that. As a matter of fact, they have this, they, you know, for being an engineering school, I, I forget, but something like 50, 60% of the graduates actually go work for um, investment banks um, in their high-speed trading. And that kind of makes sense when you think about if you're, you know, if you're a techie person, okay, you don't have to be a genius. You just have to build great algorithms, right, to, to do high-speed trading. And a lot of percentage of students actually go, and they actually have this Hamlin, Madis, Hamlin Financial Stimulator School, which is probably one of the only ones in the country where they actually model how to build high-speed algorithms for trading. Crazy. What, what about, get a little bit back in time, too, I'm just curious, like, do you still keep in touch with that family that you were with when you were in high school? Very good point. Actually, there were three, there were three families that I lived with, and, you know, all through university, I kept in touch with one of the three, and I'm sad to say that after all these years, you know, for the last, I would say, again, I graduated in 86 so 30 plus years, I really haven't kept in touch with them. And I'm a little bit, I might even say, ashamed. I did try, uh, you know, a couple of years ago to find uh, the one family, and I was not very successful. So maybe I should go back on Facebook and uh, maybe hunt them up, but uh, I don't have a Facebook account anymore. I'm not sure I'll get anywhere with that. I'm sure you could find, you'd find someone to help. And then going back to 80, kind of coming forward from then. You know, the story is you borrowed about 50 grand from FHA, maxed out your visa, you sold your Nissan Sentra for a VW Rabbit diesel, which I'm not sure was a good move, but you did it. You made some money off it. And you bought your first place and flipped it 18 months later, effectively making 20 grand. And that's what, although you kind of had it already in your day, 
from what you just shared, that's really what got you excited about it, I think. And I think at the time you had said you were making twenty five grand a year and when you're making twenty five grand a year and you get a twenty thousand dollar check, it, it gets you pretty motivated. So so talk about that period on and, and what happened. So when I graduated in 1986, I actually, um, uh, you know, decided to go and design shopping centers and design uh, wastewater treatment plants and did a big dig into a project in Oakland, California called Preservation Box. I was sort of following the steps of being a construction management person, but in my dad's eyes, much more professional um, because I was managing contractors versus being the contractor. Um, and so... Um, as you just said, in 1986, I um, sold my Nissan Sentra and I bought this apartment on Duke Street um, and I profited handsomely after one year. And that sort of, like I said, just got me motivated into real estate. I actually did it a second time. I bought a house in Woodbridge, Virginia. Uh, did the same thing for about a year. Uh, sold it at a profit. And I actually said, this real estate stuff pretty good. Um, you know, and at that stage, I then said, okay, let me start to apply for jobs uh, in the real estate business. And I'm not sure I would, I, I, you know, I would have gone to the shopping center business for this one person who gave me a job. I applied in the old-fashioned way to, you know, numerous companies. And this one company out of Staten Island called Sanford Mallet hired me to design shopping centers. And so... Uh, I actually designed shopping centers, and I went to night meetings, and I got approvals, and this was now 1989. And by 1991, we were in a recession, uh, and I put up my hand to um, finance a shopping center that needed to get built on Staten Island. Um, and so the, uh, the, the, the founder of the company almost locked me out of the room saying, what did I, an engineer, know about capital markets? Uh, he had nothing to lose. I said, you've got nothing to lose. Let me try it. go, you know, beat the bushes. And I was able to finance that deal for the first loan for Union Labor Life uh, and a participating second loan from a company that doesn't exist anymore called Hello Financial. Um, and the union needed work, uh, you know, construction work. It was a recession. And so they were pretty thrilled to provide the funding uh, for the supermarket anchor shopping center on Staten Island. Lo and behold, that, that deal made me the capital markets guru, um, and I you know, got involved with restructuring uh, a lot of the debt with Chemical Bank, in those days was a big lender mm-hmm. for us. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and it taught me you know, quite a bit, uh, because the best way to loan a business is usually in a downturn, uh, you don't really, uh, you know, on an upturn, they're all smart, and downturn, perseverance wins. And so from 91 to 94, you know, I, I, I became the president of this company uh, at the age of 32. Um, in 94, um, I tried to buy the company with two colleagues, Rich Bethan and Andy Flimmerfine, uh, and which is, you know, in this uh, works with us um, at, at, at uh, GGP, and Andy was uh, CEO of Rouse, uh, which was taken uh, private by Brookfield. So uh, my my uh, association with them 
was back in 1989. Um, and in 1994, like I said, we tried to buy the company. Uh, we actually had a sign that was intent uh, with the uh, founder. Unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, and his uh, wife, his spouse, and his family elected to keep the company um, and not sell it to us. And uh, that sort of resulted in the uh, thought of us becoming entrepreneurs. Uh, so in 1994, we actually took a piece of land that Stanford Mallet had uh, optioned, um, and we found partners um, to fund um, the, uh, the acquisition and the development. Uh, kind of ironic, uh, you know, 23 years later, we still own 20% of that shopping center. And what's even more ironic is the annual cash flow of that 20% um, is, you know, multiples of the salaries we were making when we left in 1994. So uh, good real estate, you know, continues to do well and, and thrive. So that was 1994. Uh, I then wanted to become the entrepreneur because we were in the process of building our first shopping center. Um, but ironically, during my tenure at San Fernandez, I've been approached uh, to go work for a public company called Mark Center's Trust. And a board member of Mark Center's Trust was a gentleman by the name of Marvin Levine. And Marvin, <laughs> as you know, um, you know, became general counsel at GGP. And after six uh, great years at GGP, he recently retired. So, uh, lo and behold, uh, old relationships mean quite a bit to me. Um, and you know, loyalty and uh, um, uh, is it, it, very important. And so, Marvin had said to me, why don't you go work for this gentleman who was his law partner by the name of Bruce Ratner, who was uh, who had built office building in downtown Brooklyn and was eager to build a portfolio of... Uh, of, uh, of shopping centers in the boroughs of New York City. I met Bruce, I really liked him very much, and I said, look, I want to be an entrepreneur, I'm not sure I want to really get back into working for corporate America. He said, give me a year, get me started, and then, uh, uh, then go become the entrepreneur. Uh, my affinity for Bruce uh, lasted eight years, um, and I worked with him from 94 to 2002. Uh, we built... Uh, so 15, 16, 17 shopping centers in the boroughs of New York City. What's ironic is the last one I did with him was in 2002, and subsequent to 2002, over the last uh, 15 years, they've only built one additional shopping center in the boroughs of New York City. What's fascinating, fascinating to me as I think about it is how um, life is about a people business, right? A person leaves in that business and once it comes to a standstill, but it does come to a standstill. As a matter of fact, in the last uh, 90 days, Varsity uh, sold their entire retail portfolio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I find it very ironic. And uh, so, so, so we, we, we uh, you know, what people don't really know is I, I stayed with Bruce for eight years besides the fact that I liked him very much or loved him very much, I might add. Uh, he was a character. He... Uh, his, his idea of building shopping centers in the boroughs of New York City wasn't to make money necessarily only. It was also to bring 
okay, the best prices for food to the people of New York City, which is in the boroughs of New York, not Manhattan, but in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Staten Island and in Queens. Uh, you know, there was a lot of price gouging in those days, and, um, and effectively the bodegas would make a lot of money. And he wanted to bring in, you know, the path marks or the stopping shops and the Costco's, okay, so that he could deliver to people, you know, food at an affordable price. And my, my most fond memory of him actually is uh, the borough president of Queens. Uh, he wanted to build a supermarket, and so he goes to the borough president to needs some approvals, and he takes the uh, chicken uh, from different places, from Costco, from Stop and Shop, from Pathmark, and from the bodega. And uh, the borough president was a lady by the name of Claire Schumer. And she was a very nice, motherly lady, although very tough. Uh, you know, if you, you research her, uh, she's a very tough lady, but she came across as a very motherly figure, and very, you know, uh, a matron of, of, of the family, a matron of, of, uh, of Queens, I must even say. And he, he, he goes on a clock and stays, and he puts these pieces of chicken down. And don't you want your people to save money? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was actually pretty cool, you know, very dramatic. Right. This is all before internet and, you know, price transparency and all this good stuff. And so, you know, you, you have to sort of uh, give them that a lot of credit because, uh, you, you know, and, and if you ask why he did that, which is even more interesting, that under the cockpit administration, uh, Bruce was Commissioner of Consumer Affairs. Ah. Huh. So, so it's kind of ironic that he was actually reliving just his, you know, just his, 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 uh, you know, his, his duty to the city he loved. Um, and, uh, anyways, I, I worked with him for eight years and, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was quite a hoot. Had a great time. It's amazing. It would have been even more ironic had you bought that portfolio, right? <laughs> well, if you bought the portfolio, it would have been, uh, you know, would have been, uh, would have been pretty amazing. It was a great portfolio. Yeah. Well, let's go back, and, and obviously you spent time, you were there eight years, you go to Vernado, you come to CGP in 2011, which I think is an amazing story. You could argue your whole career, actually, to me, honestly, is, is an amazing story. But if you look back at success, and you, I kind of have my own thoughts as well, but you look at the attributes and, and the, the items or the factors that drove your own success personally, right? What, what, what would you say those things are? You know, um, a couple of things. I mean, the thoughts I didn't tell you was when I was very young, um, not very young, when I was in, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, I was academically, I didn't perform well academically. And so one could have, uh, um, you know, made a comment that essentially I was uh, uh, not academically inclined. And my father, actually, at the time, even though his goal was for me to be an engineer, sort of uh, was having second thoughts whether I would actually ever go to university. And so he uh, often talked to me about how I would support myself if I wasn't going to be academically inclined. And uh, I took life uh, very lightly, obviously, I'm only seventh grade, for God's sake. And then I changed. I went from an, you know, an all-boys school um, 
you know, uh, in seventh grade, to a co-education school in eighth grade. Not the fact that I went from an all-boys to a co-educational school, but when I went to this new school in eighth grade, I excelled. I became a you know high performer. I did incredibly well academically. I became you know good at sports. And as I think back to that turning event and say, what changed? And you get cloned. And if you were a clown, the class clown for five years, okay, you know, how do you create this new self? And sometimes the events that happen that you don't know what, why they happen, but when they do happen, it allows you to reinvent yourself. And as I look back at that example, I think that change of school gave me a fresh start and I didn't have to be the class clown anymore. And so as I look at that, I always look back and say, okay, what can I learn? The, the aspect that I learned from that is, okay, you can continue to reinvent yourself. Every day is a learning experience, okay, and you have to continue to persevere. And the more that someone told me I couldn't do something, the more I was inclined to go pursue it to make it happen. Because subconsciously, I was always proving to my father that I was worthy of his love. So subconsciously, I'm always trying to prove to some people, someone, okay, that I'm worthy, I'm a worthy person. And I guess that constant fear, okay, uh, that constant need to reinvent at a very early age has stuck with me. It's amazing. So let's come to today. And I would argue, actually, Space of which you're in and we're in is at one of the major inflection points, certainly perceived and actual in some extent, that you've probably seen in your career. So talk about kind of the, the retail landscape today and about what you see happening and, and how you're navigating that. Well, you know, I think we are... In a, in a very interesting time. Um, I think fundamentally um, at GGP, we predicted that the country was over-retailed. That's not the prediction. The prediction was that the house of cars would come tumbling down very quickly. And therefore, what we needed to do was own the best. And we did some quick faculty envelope math. The first time I did the same math was in 1994. The math I did then was America had 19 square feet of retail per person, and the boroughs of New York City had three. So I would tell all the retailers, they need to come, okay, for the gold rush on the East Coast which was retail in the boroughs of New York City because we were so under-retailed. Fast forward 23 years, the placard now says America has 24 square feet of retail per person. There's only four square feet of retail per person in America that's considered high quality. Shocking similarity of numbers. Okay? And as I look through today, we sort of sit back and say, how can we be an owner of 
a large portion of this four square feet of retail per person. And we were able to streamline our portfolio, work the portfolio, sell the assets, invest in the portfolio, such that we actually now control over 8% of the best retail real estate in America, okay, which gives us 96% of our income. So we navigated, as I like to think, phase one. Phase one, we had great real estate. Okay? What is phase two, phase three, and phase four? Okay, why do I pick four phases? Only because I guess you have already hit the home run. Okay? So I think what we are is we're in phase two. Phase two is going to be a phase where you're going to try to create mini cities. So fast forward five years, I'd like to see half our assets be community hubs. If you'd asked me this question six months ago, I would have said, no, no, no. I want to be a pure play retail real estate company. I have since evolved our thinking that we need to be live work play. So the answer then becomes, how do you become the best so that effectively in an omni-channel, one-channel, one-retail, multi-retail, whatever the words are, <laughs> Uh, then you are going to succeed. And to succeed, you not only need to live, work, play, but you also need to be a place to be the logistics center for retail. And what do I mean by that? I'm a big believer of a spoken real model. When both of us opened their first stores, and I don't know whether they would evolve to this or not, but I had many intellectual conversations with the founder. And I would say that you build a great brand online. You're building these guide shops for multiple reasons. People want to touch, feel, try on, get sized, okay? Um, and the customer acquisition costs are lower. But would it not be nice if you could have multiple guide shops in a market and a couple of solid larger format stores where you can distribute to that customer the same day. If the customer wants it the same hour, they can go drive to this location and pick it up or walk or take a subway. So have a spoken new model. And kind of ironic, I've been talking about this for quite some time, and today, Nordstrom's announced mm-hmm. store in West Hollywood for 3,000 square feet which will be serviced, okay, by the nine stores we have in the LA market. So will they open 100 guide shops? I don't know. And they have 100 Northern stores where they can, where they can, they can, uh, they can uh, service the customer. So the question becomes, if the spoken meal model is the future, you want to be the spoke. You don't want to be. You, you want to be the hub. You want to be where the distribution is. You have to have that quality real estate, whereby people can come to you to pick it up, or you can service the customer to the various guide shops. Okay, in the, in the metropolitan area. So you don't need to be live, work, play. You need to curate. You need to have. You need to be the logistics center. 
And the question is, you know, can you make that happen in the next phase? Then if you ask me phase three is even more interesting. Whether we can navigate to be that platform, I don't know. But I do believe that the future is, okay, where all retailers are on a single platform. Okay? And effectively, if you can be the owner of that platform, then you become much more a digital company than ever before. And, you know, again, <laughs> talking about that, Alibaba is going to be opening its first mall in China in 2018. I am curious what it will be, but I feel pretty certain that they will be on a single platform where you can sell through online channels of bricks and mortar of the retailers that are on the mall on the Alibaba platform. They haven't told us what it is. It is pure speculation on my part. But I would sit back and say, if I am correct, then that to me is phase three. Right? Yep. And, and, and so, so I don't think it's very much in the future. I think things are moving at lightning speed. Okay? And I think phase four, okay, is it all coming together. It's actually all of it coming together. Okay, and it'll be the way, the way the world will move. But I think this can all happen very rapidly. I don't think it takes very long. I think by 2022, okay, we're going to see a fully functioning retail environment that can look the same as today, but behind the scenes works on a very different platform. Whether we can navigate it, time will tell. Well, you've got the track record. Time will tell you. You will find a way in knowing you as well. Let's talk about slightly different variations of that, so too, but going back in the past where you talked about your role and some of the stuff you're doing at Floor City, and you talked about Marvin and Rich Pesson and, and people that over time you've had the opportunity to work with and, and still do, right, in, in many cases today. Talk about the, the qualities of the people that you look for. So if you're going to hire someone new today, what kind of characteristics are you looking for in that individual that you think makes them successful? Um, I, I think the temperament of a person, whether they have humility. Um, I think um, their drive whether they can persevere, uh, whether they really appreciate we live in a world of 90% rejection and 10% acceptance, and how do you be motivated in that world? Are you, how do you persevere? Um, loyalty, are you here for the long haul, or is it about the last hour? So, um, and I would say the last point would be are you a thinker? Because today, as I look at my job, okay, it's very big picture, 
but to provide the resources to the team to win, um, uh, whether it be human resources, financial resources, physical assets. So today more than ever, I need more thinkers around me, not doers. Makes sense. So let me, we just have a few minutes left, um, and I just have a couple more questions. So one is if you were going to give yourself advice 30 years ago, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> I actually don't think I would change much. Uh, there was one thing I would probably have given myself advice as I look, look back is um, listen more. I think I was very bent on being the voice in the room and pushing versus being the motivator and then other people push. I think it's need listen more. And then a final question, but it's a different topic, and, and I know don't talk about this often because I think you're incredibly humble, but you have you give a lot to charity, not you know, time and money and from a philanthropic standpoint, um, you do a whole range of things and as an individual you do, and I, I'm curious if you'd be willing to, to share some of that. Well, you know, again, fundamentally my philanthropy starts because when I was at university, um, I um, educated myself besides the first job of being the dishwasher and the cashier. But my real first job was being a tutor for mathematics. And as I uh, um, got money to pay for my education, I realized that if you can educate people, okay, or allow people to complete their education, there can be tremendous progress. So my initial philanthropy actually started off by sponsoring a tutoring program at Stevens um, for tutors. And what we found was that the uh, rate at which the people, um, you know, um, graduate increased dramatically. So there was a huge dropout rate from freshman to sophomore year and the dropout rate reduced. Then I also look around and I um, see, you know, again, not much appreciated by, uh, I might add, the uh, UX, uh, the United States, I don't mean to be political, but our tax rates are obnoxiously high. Um, and um, and, and I, I don't think they really appreciate that universities, medical facilities, art institutions, the culture is sponsored by people personal wealth, not like in Europe, by the state. And so when I look around and what makes this country great, okay, is it's giving. So quite honestly, you know, I am not even a green, okay, uh, on the beach, uh, not even a, you know, uh, a, you know, a piece of sand. Because when you look at uh, people and how this country works, it works by giving. Actually, I made a comment yesterday because if you're watching the U.S. Open, you know, they, they showed pictures of Bill Gates. And I said, Bill Gates may be um, the biggest philanthropist uh, 
not only because he gives money, but because he gives of himself. He's running it, okay, as he founded Microsoft. And if you talk about giving, that is real giving. Where you can make real change, okay, in the lives of people around the world. And to be able to get, you know, many of his incredibly wealthy friends to have a pledge of giving, and they give away 90% of their wealth, okay, um, it's pretty incredible. And he's actually eradicated smallpox in the world. So, you know, so when you look at people like that, they're definitely motivators to say, what can you do in your own little way? Amazing. Well, Sandy, if we are out of time, I can't thank you enough for joining me for this podcast. And I want to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring it. But uh, thank you again for the time. I wish you all the success in the future and, and uh, hope our paths cross. Okay, thanks so much. Thank Bye. you.